Hey there, I'm Emlyn Miles Mattingly, your host for the Minority Money Podcast. I'm glad you're here. You know why? Because this is the place you can come to get your weekly finance, family, and fitness motivation, not only to experience success in those areas for yourself, but also to help others in our community achieve greatness too. Super happy that you're on the show with me. So let's jump right in. Welcome to the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. So got some stuff going on today. I'm joined by two guests today, Malcolm Etheridge and Samuel Dean. You recognize the last name. That's because Samuel Dean was on with us when we did the We Need to Talk series and wanted to bring him back to talk about something that he specialized in and wanted to connect these two young brothers together for the first time, actually. They're both in the equity compensation space and they had not met. So today they met on wax for the first time. So what we want to do is just kind of chop it up a little bit. We're going to be talking about equity comp. We got some questions, but I wanted to just jump into the conversation that we were having. Sam, Malcolm, thanks for coming to the show. Thanks for having me, man. Likewise. Thanks. It's a pleasure, man. So (laughs) this is funny, right? What was it like when you found another black man doing equity compensation not so many miles away from you? How did that feel? (laughs) Actually, the two of us got on and you were kind of doing your thing in the kitchen. We literally just started talking about, well, hey, how do you get clients? And what are some of the things you're doing on LinkedIn? And it's always great to meet, you know, other black men in the industry. And <laughs> I, I, it fills my soul with joy. <laughs> I didn't believe you, Emily, when you and I talked uh, a few weeks back and you mentioned like, yeah, I know this other brother that's doing the same type of work, working with folks yeah. on <laughs> equity compensation. I was like, all right, we'll see. Cool story, bro. That I'll meet him, you know, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> yeah, man. So Seeing both of you guys work in this super technical space like really brings joy to me because anytime that I can look at an advisor, you know, a black advisor specifically in this case, and know that he's a technical expert in a specific, a very, very hyper focused area, a niche, if you will, or a niche, however you want to call it. But, you know, and to have two of you that do the same thing, I thought it was just awesome. I felt like I can't have one of them on and I had the other one on because I know both of you. So I was like, I could just imagine Sam listening to the episode. Like you have Malcolm on talking about equity comp and then vice versa. After I talked to Russell, I said, you know what, we're going to bring both of them on and have a good conversation, man. So Sam, give us a little background. Give the listeners a little background of yourself. Yeah, sure, man. So I'm a financial planner as well. I run an independent investment advisory firm, Dean Financial Partners. Going through a little brand switch right now, switching the name over to Dean Wealth Management, just because I wanted it to be more specific. When someone were to, you know, read the name of my company, I wanted them to be able to quickly identify exactly it is, you know, what I do. Financial partners was a little vague, so we're in a transition of that. But I work, you know, exclusively with professionals in the tech industry. And, you know, growing up, you know, my mom's mindset around ownership and equity really had a profound influence on me. And that really sparked my desire to be a business owner. And so after college, you know, I pursued my MBA. I began working in finance while in business school. And, you know, I really realized that the industry at large was relatively the same, right? You know, I would go to certain, you know, interviews and they'd be like, okay, well, you know, this was great. It was barely really an interview. Give me a piece of paper and a pen and say, well, all right, write down 50 names, you know, that has a quarter million or how much in assets. And I'm just like, well, I mean, (laughs) do you know where I'm from? Like, it was weird, man. And, you know, being in those spaces where you're the only black person in the room or the youngest person in the room and people sort of speaking to you in, in condescending tones, you know, that really just solidified my, you know, decision to want to do my own thing, but I didn't really know how. And so, 
you know, I knew that the type of culture that these firms had in terms of it being a commission-based sales sort of structure. And, you know, I just felt like that was not transparent and it wasn't going to be fit for my generation. So, you know, concurrently, my fiance had transitioned to the tech industry. And it was then that I actually noticed an opportunity in the tech space from a wealth management lens. You know, tech professionals are a niche group of investors that experience very specific pain points. And, you know, my goal was to develop the specialized knowledge, you know, in those areas, you know, and so with ownership being the end goal, I really took the time to, you know, being a student of the industry, I discovered the CFP and its three-year requirement. And, you know, I did the planning and research and all those things that I needed to do to sort of start my own firm. And, you know, I really devoted my time to a deep learning of the actual craft as well as the pain points of my niche. And so as soon as I met the experience requirement, I just went out and launched my own firm. And um, I've been, you know, sort of building with intention since. I like that. I didn't even realize the rebranding was going on, but I like that. The direction of it, the clarity that you bring to the casual observer yes, of yes. Dean Financial now. is Dean Financial, that's what we do. <laughs> Dean Wealth Management. Dean Wealth Management. I like that. Strong net. What's going on with you, Malcolm? Talk to the listeners. Tell them a little bit about you, your story and whatnot. Yeah, sure. First of all, Samuel, the marketer and me can appreciate the name, the rebrand. That mm-hmm. definitely goes a long way to making sure people know what you do when they Google search you. But yeah, so as you said, Emlyn Malcolm Etheridge, I'm a certified financial planner here in the DC area. Been in the business almost a decade now. Started my career at Merrill Lynch and did their training program. Graduated from that and stayed for a couple more years before I got recruited away to Wells Fargo Advisors and then stayed there for three and a half ish years, I think. And I don't have to explain to anybody why it was a good idea to leave there, (laughs) considering, you know, all the different headlines that were continuously showing up about the firm. And there's only so many times you can say to folks, but that isn't me before it starts to become a challenge. So anyway, currently a partner at a independent advisory firm based in Rockville, Maryland, which is like 45 minutes, suburbs, like 45 minutes outside of DC. It's in the nice part of town. And that's why, that's why we're located there. So that's in a nutshell what my journey looks like. I have had the same experience that Sam was talking about where, you know, you're the one non-middle-aged white man advisor in the room of... So my office at Merrill Lynch, I'll go back to, was like one of the largest in the country. We had like maybe 80-ish advisors in one office at the height of it. And at any given time, we had maybe two black advisors in the office. And one was constantly a trainee who was coming and going because as I'm sure you've educated your listeners a million times on the podcast, Emlyn, the industry loves to chew us up and spit us out. So you get the folks that started out like I did, whereas I won't use the word hostile, but it's super high pressure, super like go find anybody you possibly can to sell something to and collect a commission. And, you know, to your point, coming into the business at 23 when I did, you know, I know even at this age, but especially back then, I couldn't put all my friends in a room together and have their net worth meet the firm's minimum of $250,000 to take on a new client. So it was, you know, a lot of meeting strangers, shaking hands, kissing babies and getting really good at talking about what I did and who I did it for and why I was a good choice. But I will say that the reason I think that I was able to kind of deal with it in ways that other people either decided they didn't want to anymore or frankly just couldn't is because before getting into this business, I actually was a sales manager at CarMax coming out of college. 
And so for me, everything was always a comparison to if I wasn't doing this, I'd be selling used cars in the snow. So I think this is still a better trade-off, right? So I started out in the world of cold calling strangers and, you know, talking to them about their rent savings and everything else. And people would be like, you know, how do you cold call people for a living? My answer was always, they beat selling used cars in the snow. That was pretty much my entry in. Obviously leveled up a few times since then and now working primarily with uh, senior managers and execs in the tech space. Although, you know, the clients come from everywhere. Kind of the space that I consider to be my area of expertise is working with those folks who are seasoned in the tech world and their overall picture tends to look a lot similar to each other, which is part of the reason it, it helps to specialize in an area. Absolutely. And so I like hearing the journey of both of you guys coming into the industry, how you guys got to get in. And, and it's almost like, you know, I look at the stories of most you know, financial advisors that come into the industry and how they have to you know, navigate where they're going to go. And then you learn a little bit and then you learn a little bit more. And then you start to develop what your ideologies are and how you should develop and run your practice. And so seeing all that and knowing how you guys are doing, I think it's really cool, man. And, you know, we about to really disrupt the industry. I think about it, you know, I was listening to the song the other day and he was like, it was Nipsey, I think. And he was talking about, I just needed the door cracked. Just crack the door open a little bit for me. All I need is like a little cracked door. And after I get in, I'm busting it open and I'm going to make sure that what we do is great. And so with all that being said and everything that's going on, man, I thank both of you guys for the work that you were doing in the space that you were doing it. And let's jump right into this conversation. And, and first, I want to explain to, you know, because we have some people that don't get equity compensation. So at a high level, if you're explaining something to someone on, explain what equity compensation is, especially for our listeners that are in tech and for the people that aren't in tech. Yeah, so I'll jump in and grab that one, Emlyn. So essentially, having equity in the firm that you work for means that you own a piece of the pie. So, you know, the company itself, the way that it funds its operations, the way that it grows and takes in money to expand operations and everything else is to sell stock in the company. And so in doing so, one of the ways that they compensate their employees is to offer that same stock to you as part of your compensation package. So generally, the higher up the food chain you go within the organization, the more of your compensation is paid to you in stock. So if you think about like the CEO of Amazon, for example, Jeff Bezos, he makes a dollar a year, technically, is the salary he pays himself. But I can't tell you how many gazillions of Amazon shares he actually owns and continues to get paid as compensation for the work that he does. So it's in its essence, it's owning a piece of the pie rather than just being paid a salary, regardless of how productive your efforts are on behalf of the firm. So essentially, yeah, like you're saying, a piece of ownership that you have in the company that you can work for, which also increases employee morale, retention. Anything else you want to add to that, Sam? You know, in terms of, I guess, stock compensation, you know, obviously all of that is true. Um, But what I would say is that, you know, in addition to those things, because equity compensation is awarded in you know, so many different vehicles, right? You have stock options, RSUs, employee stock purchase plans, and so forth. You know, that ownership really makes all the difference when you understand what you own, you know, and so things pertaining to, you know, understanding the tax consequences of the different vehicles of new, you know, certain actions you may make to maybe cash in, you know, some of that stock, you know, you want to be able to, you know, be very keen on, on those consequences. And so, 
I love stock options. You know, that's part of the reason why my fiance actually chose to transition into tech um, is because of the allure of equity compensation and being able to grow financially with a company. 41% of, you know, millennials net worth is made up of stock options. Almost half of them has exercised their some or all of their stock options to fund whatever goals that they have. So I think it's extremely important. And, you know, I do think you'll be seeing more of that outside of the tech space. Awesome. I love the fact that you're doing that with millennials specifically, Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of folks right now in our community who are graduating college for the first time. They're first generation college graduates. It feels crazy to say that in 2020 that people graduating college are still the very first ones in their families to attend and graduate from college. (laughs) So you know exactly what I'm talking about. Me too. And that then means that those are probably first generation wealth creators also. Mm And so, as you mentioned, like as they're getting the opportunity to own stock in the companies that they work for and they themselves technically are helping to build that with a little bit of guidance, they can build their entire future. Their lineage is the word I was looking for around that. But if they don't have the guidance and that impulse to just go ahead and sell, liquidate everything, take the cash and then figure it out from there. If they give into that impulse because they don't know any better, well, then the wealth really never gets created in a meaningful way. And so, you know, I don't necessarily target millennials specifically in that space, but I'm glad to hear that, like, that's the group that you're working with that is getting that information from a legitimate practitioner and not somebody that's telling them, like, yo, cash out those stock options and buy this life insurance policy. (laughs) Because that's a lot of the crap that I see happening out there. Oh, boy. Did you just say buy Because, you know, like, don't get me started on bad life insurance practices. All right. Anyhow, I'm just going to change gear because I'll get derailed on that. I can't stand that. I can't like boils my blood like that just makes me mad. So let's talk about this real quick, because we talked about what equity compensation is. And you talked about Jeff Bezos and how his equity compensation works. But, you know, let's take this back and let's say we got someone that works at Google, Microsoft, one of these tech companies, maybe because you talk about the equity compensation basically changing the basically the financial lives of the clients that understand how to use this. So how do they convert that money into cash? Like you said, RSUs, what does that mean? Talk to people that like they don't know what it is and talk about how you can convert that to cash. I want you know, either one of you can jump in on that one. I'll take that one. You know, for, for starters, the first thing that really attracted me to equity compensation was that I saw it as a vehicle, particularly in the private equity space, that it can really shift your family's trajectory if you come from the sort of places that we come from. And, you know, I know that, you know, but the majority of the tech industry looks very similar to the finance industry. But I do find that there are, you know, quite a few people from, you know, our community that are getting opportunities in tech and are really killing it, right? And so, again, going back to some of the things that I mentioned before, you know, really understanding what you have and being aware of the consequences of cashing in those different vehicles of stock to be able to fund your goals is extremely important, right? When we talk about, you know, RSUs that are essentially restricted stock units, it's essentially just a promise, you know, at the you know, beginning of employment that an employer says, well, at the end of this specific time frame of employment with us, we'll grant you X amount of shares of company stock. Let's say Google, for example, since that's what you brought up, right? And once those shares actually belong to you, that becomes a taxable event. So that adds to your taxable income. And then when you go to sell those shares, the gains that you've earned also is taxable income, right? And so you want to be able to efficiently 
sell those shares. And, you know, if you want to get into stock options, that's, you know, a little bit more complicated in terms of like an exercise price and exercising the stock options at the right time and, and so forth. But, you know, I would say the focus area is really the tax planning around equity compensation, because you're not just planning, you know, to receive income in one year. You know, that's sort of a multi-year sort of planning that needs to happen for you to create, you know, a certain equity compensation plan where if you are, you know, cashing in these, this stock for cash to fund your goals, you're doing it in a tax efficient manner and you're not generating, you know, short-term capital gains tax. And, you know, if you're aware of the qualifying disposition of incentive stock options, you, you know, will wait that two years to be able to, you know, cash in for whatever goal you have. So I think it's really all about understanding the tax consequences. I think that that plays a huge role in deciding when and where and how you're going to optimize these stocks. And yes, taxes isn't the only thing. I mean, obviously you have to have goals that are attached to your equity compensation. You know, that's the best way, you know, to utilize them. But I do think that it is important to be aware of certain tax consequences so you can just enjoy your life efficiently. Okay, Sam, I need an example now because I still don't know what equity compensation, I know what it is. But the listener might not know. So give me an example. You got a, you know, 20, you said a millennial. So you got a 28 year old working for a tech company X. They get awarded this. They need to get some of this money. How do they get that money out like that? You know what I mean? You're talking about taxes, but give me an example. Like, you know, you get awarded X amount of shares of stock. This is for your compensation. You're fully vested in those shares. Now you want to cash some of those in to either pay down some of your student loans, buy a new home, whatever type of stuff you're seeing that your clients are doing. So give me one of those examples. If we're talking about, you know, I guess the simplest form, which is RSUs, right? Once those RSUs actually belong to you, you'll wake up in the morning and you'll see shares of Google in your brokerage account. At that point, you know, if it's within your trading window, which is when your company essentially says, this is the time period or this is the window where you're allowed to sell shares just, you know, because of insider trading and those sorts of things. You simply can just log on to your brokerage account, wherever that's held. It could be, you know, Fidelity, Vanguard, wherever. And you could just go ahead and put in a sell order for those shares and receive the cash and, you know, do the things you need to do. It's relatively simple to actually physically cash in on those shares. So does that answer your question? Yes. And I'm trying to get real specific. And the only reason I'm doing that is because I'm thinking like when you're seeing stuff like this, what is a typical, you know, I'm not trying to get numbers, I guess, but I am trying to get numbers like, you know, just give me a hypothetical. Like, you got this kid, like paint that picture. How many shares would he have? What does that look like? Him or her? You know what I mean? Because I really think that we're talking about it, but we're not talking about it because someone that doesn't hear, doesn't understand this is not going to understand unless we use numbers and, you know, okay, he had, since he worked there, he started this person, he or she, they gave him 2000 shares of X amount of stuff. It doesn't have to be a company specific, but they gave mm-hmm. you this many shares because I'm hearing it, but I can't visualize how much money that person is. And you're saying that wow. it could change how much, the, you know, change the trajectory of a family. I'm like, with what though? Does that make sense? Okay. I'm trying to get some okay. teeth. That, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense. All right. So prime example, actually, I just onboarded a new client that just got an offer at Amazon. Mm-hmm. So, well, let's say the company's Amazon, right? And so the base salary was 180. The, after the first year, he gets a 285 uh, annual bonus. After the second year, he gets a 235 bonus. And he also gets 180 shares in Amazon. And let's say the share price of Amazon is $1,000. That's another $180,000 worth portfolio worth of Amazon shares. You know, all of that adds up. And you can squander it if you sort of just use it irresponsibly, whether through spending or through irresponsible tax planning. 
or you can really be efficient and maximize the amount of money that actually hits your pocket and that you're able to fund your goals with, whether they be retirement, buying a home and so forth. Okay. Makes sense. Let me add something to that. Emlyn, I mentioned before that I started my career in like the brokerage world with that banking arm. And so one of the things that got me most interested in this space and finally convinced me that I should like spend some real time here working with folks is the ability to leverage those concentrated stock positions. So what I mean by that is Samuel just mentioned that for a person who works at Amazon and they get paid $180,000 in Amazon stock in every single year that they work there. So if they work there for 10 years, you know, they've just made $2 million almost in Amazon stock at today's price, who knows what it's worth 10 years from now. So 10 years from now, they've got $2 million in that stock where if they decide to sell it, they've got to now pay taxes on that $2 million. And one of the challenges to managing concentrated stock wealth is figuring out how to access that asset without causing a whole bunch of tax problems. So a person who has that level of stock compensation has a whole lot of tax problems. So one of the things that's also available to you is the opportunity to borrow against that stock position without having to liquidate it, which means you don't create tax problems. So an example of that, because I know you're going to ask me for a practical way to apply it. One of the things that really jumped out to me was whenever it was that Donald Sterling got himself in trouble and the world found out he was racist and the Clippers went up for sale, Steve Ballmer one of the co-founders of Microsoft, I guess one of their very first employees, I don't know if he's technically a co-founder. But he stepped in to buy the team and he bought the team for $2 billion. And everybody was like, oh, my God, I can't believe he would pay that much. And the reason he didn't really care was because he actually had however many billions of dollars in Microsoft stock. He just took out a loan against that Microsoft stock for $2 billion to write a check to buy the team. So at that point, I think that was like five years ago, six years ago, say Microsoft was selling at like $150 a share. Today, it's at, you know, $250 a share. I'm just throwing out numbers as an example. He didn't ever have to sell those shares of Microsoft to acquire the team. He just has a loan against it the same way people have a mortgage against their house or a home equity line against the equity in their house that he now is able to double dip. So you get the best of both worlds, which is something that average workers don't get the opportunity to do because they don't get paid in form of stock. So there's another opportunity to avoid taxes, get access to the value of the stock without ever having to turn it over. And that's a tactic that, like I said, a lot of folks outside of our purview tend to use to acquire things like Jeff Bezos bought his Washington, D.C. house for like $20 million. Same thing, borrowed against some Amazon stock and hasn't paid a dime, you know, technically out of his pocket to do it. And those are the things that I want to make sure that we bring access to our community as planning tools that a lot of times people don't take advantage of simply because they don't know that they exist, simply because there aren't a lot of planners that look like us doing this work that, you know, can even bring that information to them. This is like wealth building. I need you to explain it like that because now people are saying, oh, that's what he means. (laughs) There's there's levels to this. Yeah, bro. That's at a different level. You know, you look at the Jeff Bezos, you look at the Steve Ballmer, you look at these, you know, large, very wealthy people. And you may have some young millennials that are, you know, getting out of tech, which I'm sure they understand that, but getting awarded those shares of stock. And then you got the flip side where they might work for a smaller startup tech where they, you know, they can't get paid. Only thing they could get is pay me in equity. And I said it like that because there's a book called Pay Me in Equity, 
which we will put the link to the show notes and it'll describe a little bit in detail about what RSUs are, ESUs, and a couple of the other stock units that they're speaking of here. But this could really change the complexion of wealth because I think that it's so powerful. Like, you know, can you imagine just borrowing, like, you know, you got this young couple, whatever, both of them in tech and they're getting ready to, you know, buy a house or whatever, and they can borrow money off of that and really avoid those taxes and really start to plan. So to have a planners like yourself out there speaking about this, this is awesome. So Malcolm, I wanted to talk to you. I wanted to ask you this question. When it comes to execs, this is something that you see really, really happening with executives and tech firms, right? Mm-hmm. So talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, I know we talked about taxes and you help them with that. Is that some of the ways that you help them as you were talking about the stuff that you know, we've seen Steve Ballmer doing and, and Jeff Bezos? Or is there other tactics that you have that you like to use with your clients? All of the above, man. I'm a tax nerd. I'm actually studying for the IRS enrolled agent exam right now because I just like love getting into the weeds and finding out ways to reduce how much the IRS gets off of us every year. Because frankly, like, you know, if you think about, again, the super wealthy people in this country, they would rather spend a million dollars on really high priced lawyers and accountants to help them figure out how to save $40 million in taxes, right? So if you think about it on a smaller scale, like for example, I have a client who's the chief technology officer for a bank. And so you don't necessarily think about that as a person who's in tech, but he is. He gets paid 50% of his annual compensation in shares of stock in that company. And part of the reason that it's now 50% is because one of the first conversations that we had when I looked at his tax return. So for new clients onboarding them, one of my roles, the very first thing I do is look at their previous two years of tax returns. That's where all the nice little nuggets and the data lives that tells me basically everything I need to know about you before you ever start talking to me and telling me the things that I need to know. And so in looking at it, you know, he's telling me about, you know, he's about to take this new position as the CTO, leaving his old firm, blah, blah, blah. And one of the things I said was like, if they were to pay you an additional $200,000, like you're talking about going after, and that's the reason you want to make the jump, the IRS is getting half off the top, right? Not technically, but, you know, he lives in California. So you got 12%, I think, 11.5% state taxes on top of 37% for the Fed at the top level, all that kind of stuff. So if you were to get paid an additional $200,000, you're really getting 100000 of it. However, if you were to ask for stock instead, you get your whole 200000 plus whatever it grows to over the time that you're working there. Or if you never spend it, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years into the future. And so now because he went back and reconfigured how he negotiated his onboarding deal, about 50% of his overall compensation is in stock. And so that's one of those things where, you know, you're building a position in this company for 10, 15 years, let's say he's there. Now you're going to suddenly have, you know, three quarters of your overall household net worth tied to the stock of one company. So now you've got another high class problem, right? Like, how do I diversify out of this one company stock that, you know, suddenly is everything to me to turn it into actual cash money that I can spend to fund my lifestyle once I retire or to send my kids to college or to buy that next house or whatever it is. And then to your point, there's always going to be some kind of tax implications of doing it that, that way. But at least you know, on a dollar for dollar basis, 50% going to the IRS as ordinary income tax, if you get it as cash in your pocket as a salary, 20% going to the IRS as long-term capital gains. 
if you just wait 12 months and one day to get those shares and have them vest. So even just on that level, if you decided to cash everything out the day you get it, you're saving, call it 30% in taxes just by deferring it for a year in the form of getting paid in stock instead of cash. So equity compensation is playing chess, not checkers. 100%. Okay. Basically, that's what we summed it up to. I was like, you playing chess, you're using, it's very strategic in what you're trying to do. I was like, I should have worked for a tech company. I, <laughs> I don't know anything about tech though, so I guess they wouldn't have liked me. This is awesome, man. I really like this conversation. I wanted to ask one more question before we get into the changing the complexion of wealth questions, but I think this is a perfect lead in. So Sam, what are your thoughts on generational wealth in the black community? And that's something that I'm really big on and I'm doing my best to kind of speak more on and just being, bringing more visibility to that topic. Because when you think about how black people were, you know, we, we came to America on the balance sheet. We represented what wealth was in America. And we are the only people who are continuously and systematically denied wealth over time. It's extremely important to me, right? You know, when you think about things like redlining and denial of mortgage loans and not being able to own a home and all these things, you know, that was the number one wealth builder for most of Americans. And, you know, for us to sort of be denied that for so long, that had a tremendous impact on the type of the sort of wealth or lack of that, you know, we were able to build. And so for me, you know, as a financial advisor, it's extremely important to me to help my clients build wealth. When sort of that George Floyd thing was going on, you know, I had a tough time with just dealing with it. Like, do I be vocal on Twitter? Do I say anything? You know, I only follow people in our industry on my Twitter. And so my feed was relatively interesting. You know, I had a tough time. There was like a protester in nearby and, you know, they were sort of, how should I say this? Um, not very welcoming. And this is like five minutes away from where I live. And it really fired me up. You know, I had no idea how to feel about it. I was on a emotional roller coaster, so to speak. And it just, I don't know, something hit me and it really just solidified my decision that my business and running this firm is my version of activism. This is my contribution to helping my community build wealth and then maybe guiding them on ways that they can impact their community with the wealth that they've built. And so that's sort of my mission and what I want to give fruit for in this world. I like that. And there's so much more to get into about the generational wealth in the Black community or the lack thereof and the reasons why it's been such a lack. But I got an episode on deck for you on that. Don't even worry about that. I got a whole episode for you on it, but it's coming. So I just want to let you know, we're going to really dig into it. There were some papers that were written about the wealth gap, and I'm trying to get connected with the person that have written that paper. So we're going to try to get them on and, and get a little more context around that for the listeners that might not understand all of the things that Black people have to endure coming to this country, living in this country, and the way that we were the only people that have ever been to this country that have been treated the way that we have been treated for as long as we've been treated this way. There's no other class of people that have been treated the way we have, but we overcome, and that's what we're doing. So with that being said, this is the Minority Money Podcast. As you know, we are changing the complexion of wealth. So gentlemen, I got a few questions for you. What motivates you to continue to learn and grow? And we'll, we'll start with you, Malcolm. What motivates you? I guess it's just the competitive spirit of wanting to be better than everybody else at what I do. And I know exactly how that sounds and may rub some people the wrong way, but that's genuinely how I mean it. 
And don't get me wrong, like we are all three financial planners in the exact same space, potentially talking to the same clients, but there's still this collegial vibe between us that I'm literally rooting for the two of you guys to do well in this space just because I want to see more of us exist in this space for as long as we possibly can, right? But with that said, I want to be better at what I do than everybody else who does this for a living. And so that's the reason that I'm fired up enough to decide, like, I'm going to put myself through the torture of studying for another designation. And I'm going to commit to spending the hours that it takes, you know, studying tax code and stuff like that. I just really want to be good at it. I just happen to be like obsessed with this business. I think that's a good thing that you're in this business then, huh? Glad someone left the door cracked for you so you could get in. Me too. Sam, what's going on? What motivates you and inspires you? Malcolm stole my answer, man. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, honestly, you know, I resonate with everything he says, you know, actually before meeting Malcolm, I felt, you know, I still feel this way now, but, you know, I really felt like I had done a good job of really carving a unique lane for myself. You know, I felt like as a black man, it's very hard to be a generalist in this business and succeed, you know, as an independent advisor in this business. And so I knew that I had to specialize in something to at least, you know, help build my business faster. And so for me, I was really dedicated to equity comp and tax planning and learning as much as I could and just really being a student of the industry. And that really is what inspires me. And I think that really stems from my drive that, you know, my mom instilled in me. I was actually having a conversation with my mom today and, you know, she kind of brought a little bit of tears to my eyes. I walked upstairs, she was listening to God. And then she was like, you know, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. I was just like... It just made me so happy, you know, to see her be so enthusiastic about, you know, what I'm doing and people that I'm trying to help. And, you know, she mentioned something to me that I never even really, it was subconscious to me. She was basically saying that ever since I was younger, I always had this drive to be like the youngest black man to do this or the first black man to do that. And I don't really remember that, but, you know, I think just my upbringing around my parents and the motivation and encouragement and the drive that, you know, they give me and just seeing how they shifted, you know, our family trajectory because they come from nothing, bottom of the barrel, you know? And so that really inspires me to grow and lead and to pay it forward for, you know, my community. Man, love that. If you guys have two, you know, each of you have a piece of advice for our listeners, whoever wants to start next, I say, give our listeners some parting gifts. Malcolm. Samuel, whichever one wants to go. Well, as far as parting gifts, I'll just say, like, I personally am a person who subscribe the methodology that if people knew better, they would do better. And so I appreciate that you exist on this platform to help educate as many people as possible who some will never work with us. They'll never actually engage with us as clients, but they can consume the information and get the education that way. I also have a podcast that I do called Manage Your Damn Money that we touch on some of the same issues, but still not the same way that you do specific to our community. And so, you know, I just appreciate the platform that you've created to speak to people, to help give them those nuggets, to be able to do better for themselves in a way that not a lot of other people are willing to do and give away. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. I think applied knowledge is power. So I'm just trying to get the knowledge out there and hopefully they apply it. His brothers like you that inspire me. So I think it's us working together, man. I, I see the work that you guys are doing and or that you're doing, and it inspires me to keep going and pushing and to share the platform that we're creating. You know, and it's not just me. It's, there's a group of us. I think it takes all of us to do this. So thank you for that. Piece of advice from you, Mr. Dean. Real quick, two things. I'd say definitely, you know, I agree with Malcolm. If you knew better, you do better. The first step is to, you know, really learning more about money. 
But I'd say that, you know, you could read all the books, read all the blogs, listen to all the podcasts in the world. But if you don't take action, then none of those things will come into fruition. So, you know, maybe identify, you know, the first three things you're going to do next week to put yourself in a better financial position, whether it's this week, I'm not spending money on food or this week, I'm going to finally look at, you know, align my 401k or, you know, something of the sort, do some sort of action to better your financial position. Action. Take action. action. I appreciate both of you brothers. Like I said, man, it's been great. It's always good just to get on and just talk and explain some things to people. I think you guys did an excellent job. And if people want to get a hold of you, Sam, what social medias are you active on and how can they get to you? I'm on all platforms at Samuel S. Dean. Dean has an E at the end. Everybody always missed that. And I have a newsletter at techmoney.deanfinancial.com. Like that. Tech money, Dean Financial. Let's get it. Malcolm, where they find you at? On social media is at Malcolm on money. And for everything else, just MalcolmEthridge.com. Sounds good. So that's how you can get a hold of these two brothers. Thank you for coming on. Appreciate the work that you do. As everyone knows, this is the Minority Money Podcast, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly. Until next time. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening on now and give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and be supported by others just like you. And again, we're glad to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it can't be your complete one-stop shop. I know, I know, that really sucks. But I don't know anything about your specific situation. So please reach out to an attorney or CPA, or you can reach out to me, a financial planner, to help you with your specific situation. To get a hold of us, please reach us at fan at Minority Money Podcast. That's F-A-N at Minority Money Podcast so we can get to know you there. Thanks for being here. And until next time.